0: Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit LifeCenterNYC.com. I'm going to take us through the book of Isaiah, particularly chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to go through what Isaiah experienced in a time of trial and testing in Israel. In his time of trial, actually his time of commissioning was this very moment. And so we're going to delve into Isaiah chapter 6 today. I'm going to cover three themes essentially. God is the one and only one on the throne. God is holy beyond our comprehension. And God's judgments always come with hope. So that's where we're going Today. I want to start off with, you know, we were recently in Orlando a few weeks back, so some of the pastors, we went down to a conference in Orlando. I've never been in Florida much, but I tell you, I get why people from New York go there all the time. It's like the opposite of everything in New York, <laughs> everything about it. And and one thing I learned is the rain is, is opposite. It, the rain is bigger there. Um, I don't know why, um, but maybe, you know, anyway, I won't I won't go into it, but... So my wife and I were there and we're staying at a hotel going to this conference, no kids, glory to God. And I love them, but you just need a break. And so anyway, it's one night and it's, it's raining and we're like, well, if there's no kids and we don't have a car, but like, let's just go and, and run through the rain and we'll go find dinner somewhere. We'll just walk there. It'll be fun. It'll be romantic. It'll be, you know, everything that we want. Um, And so we got on, of course, it wasn't, but we got on our our rain, you see where I'm going, we got on our rain jackets, and we didn't have umbrellas, and we were out there trudging through the rain, but we're having fun, and then I realized about halfway to the restaurant that, like, literally, I'm feeling every raindrop hitting me. Like, my back is completely drenched, like, everything is drenched, and I'm like, what is going on? So I I look in my rain jacket, I've had for years, and I realize it's not a rain jacket, it's a windbreaker. (laughs) It breaks wind, but rain, it has no impact on. So I'm literally like, I've had this for years, and I didn't know. I'm like, babe, I need a new rain jacket. I hate shopping. Please shop for me. Um, But it, it it was funny because I've had that jacket for so long, I've worn it all the time, and it wasn't actually protecting me. And I didn't know that it wasn't protecting me until the rains came. So the waters came and the testing came and the trial came. And I realized, wow, what I thought was protecting me is not protecting me at all. And so I want to encourage you in this season where there is testing, where there is trial, where there's wars and rumors of wars. Like if you if, if things begin shaking, if you begin to feel you, your faith may be tested and you may find it's not as solid. It's not as substantive as you would have liked. I want to encourage you if you find that, if you experience that. Turn to the Lord. Go run into his arms because it's not meant to alarm you, although it should alarm you. It's meant to provoke you to come to him, to get your heart and your mind and your life rooted and grounded in Christ alone. All right? So some of you, you're feeling some of that shaking, and that's okay if you're leaning into him. And praise God you're here today. That's what we're doing. We're leaning into Jesus today. We want more of Jesus, and he is the king. He is the one and only king. So I'm going to jump into Isaiah 6. Turn with me to Isaiah 6, verse 1. And before I do, just give a little context. Isaiah um, was around a long time ago. He's talking 700 B.C. He is, a, he is a prophet of the Lord, and this is his commissioning moment. And essentially, there's a lot of trying things happening in Israel at this time. Uh, the Assyrians are about to come in and take, and take out the northern tribe of Israel, Israel. Um, and the southern tribe, they're going to be taken over by Babylon. And so he's prophesying and declaring a lot of these things during his lifetime. But in this specific moment, he has this encounter with God, and he dates it. And the date that he puts on this moment, he says, during the year, of, in the year that King Uzziah died. So just to give a little context of King Uzziah, you can read about him, 2 Corinthians uh, 26 or 2 Kings 15. King Uzziah was a mighty king. He was a king that walked in the ways of God. Um, but he ended very poorly. He reigned for 50 years. He built a vast army in Israel, and good things were happening under his reign, but he became prideful. He became arrogant, puffed up with the things that he had been given, and essentially, at the end of his life, he goes and he tries to burn incense in the temple of the Lord, on the altar of the Lord, and in that attempt, right, the priests come in. They confront him, like, what are you doing? This is only for priests, and in his pride and arrogance, He does a dumb thing, and actually he gets leprosy. He contracts leprosy. The Lord strikes him with leprosy. And all the days of his life, he lived apart from the people in, like, his own little home, and he died alone. And so it's a tragic death for a a king that there was a lot of hope and promise in. And so that's the context of this verse. And it starts in this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He doesn't say how he saw him. He just says he saw him. So we don't fully know. This was a vision. He was taken up. Um, He probably was taken up, but we'll just read it from there. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, a throne, one throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. It's a very dramatic scene. It's a very powerful scene. This is the turning point in Isaiah's life. Now remember, King Uzziah is dead. There's no longer this earthly king ruling over Israel, and God is pointing out. Hey, even though there's trial and testing, even though Assyria is coming, even though Babylon is coming and your leadership is dismantled, guess what? There is a king on the throne, high and exalted, lifted up above every other king, above every other kingdom. He is high and lifted up on one singular throne. And he's not pacing. He's not, he's not frustrated. He's not sad. He's not trying to figure it out. He's seated on that throne. And Isaiah needed this moment. He needed this revelation in that time of testing to ground his heart, to know, as Bill was saying earlier, that God is in control. How much more so do you and I have to know that there is one seated on the throne, that the things we see in front of us aren't just the nations raging out of control. They're raging, but it's all within his control. He sets the parameters of their rage. Do you know that? God actually, and you can see this in dialogue in the book of Job, God actually says, this is how far you can go, and no further. That's it. He is higher than every principality. He is higher than Satan. He is higher than all these dominions and all these empires, and there's no one that can possibly match God. Like, it's just, it's embarrassing to try to even bring earthly comparisons to a God who is that mighty and holy and powerful. Imposters will try to scare us, make us think they're the kings of the universe, that they have control. And there's a lot of narratives you could believe around the situation right now in Israel to make you fearful and think there's others that are controlling the narrative. They are not. God is controlling the narrative. He, he's actually, he's the initiator. And so sometimes we think like, oh, we, oh, God, God, we want to pray. Like, stop all these things. Stop. And he's like, no, they're responding to me. I'm not responding to them. They're responding to me and what I want to do. And so we pray in accordance, in confidence and peace. And we pray, we, we, we bind the things of the enemy. We bind, when we see evil, you pray against that evil. It doesn't, it doesn't make us passive, but it makes us aware of his sovereignty and his control. And it actually puts us in a state of peace where we can live and pray and walk in love versus letting fear sort of take root in our heart which ultimately produces no witness of Jesus. In in these times ahead, the the witness of Christ will be so evident because of the peace that rules and reigns in the hearts of believers. That is what's going to set your witness apart. You're not just talking about Christ, and you should. You need to talk about him, but you're exuding the peace that passes understanding in your spirit because you know he's in control, and you know his biblical plan, and it will come to pass. So let's look at Isaiah. Let's look at, I I, I, got to say this real quick. The other thing about God's biblical plan, it's not just that he's in control, it's that he's good. It's not just that he knows what's going to happen, it's that he's got redemptive purposes. And, And so any evil, corrupt, wicked, terrible thing, we can pray with confidence that God will redeem that thing. Even your own bad decisions and bad decisions of governments and leaders, you can pray in confidence, God, would you redeem it? God, would you, would you touch people? Even though there's wickedness and hatred being released, would you release your love? Would you expose? People are being exposed right now to the level of hatred and wickedness that's possible in the human heart. That may seem bad, but that can be a very good thing when they recognize there must be a greater love. There must be, a, there must be something to counter this wickedness and hatred that they didn't think was possible. We know it's possible because we know God, we know his love, and we know the plans that come against him. But they're going to experience his love in a greater measure in the midst of wickedness and hatred. So how does God, how does God reveal himself to Isaiah? I want to jump into that. He tells Isaiah, or he shows Isaiah himself in the temple, and it says the trail or the hem of his robe. What does it do? It fills the temple you think layer after layer, just like over flooding the temple of God. What does that mean? I don't know fully to tell you the truth, but I have a few ideas. Could could it be just the sheer majesty and power and dominion of God? He can't even be contained within this temple. Could could it be his his splendor and beauty and wonder, this royal robe that just keeps descending and 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 cascading throughout the temple? There's many different things it could be, but it it certainly is. Talking about God's sovereignty and His Majesty and His power. Now, around this throne there are seraphim. These are these are angelic creatures. Um, you, you see these types of creatures in different um, revelations, right? Different encounters people have. This is the only place in the Bible where they show up, actually. This particular one, and they have these six wings, and they're 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 around the throne, gazing at the one on the throne, right? And and they. They're covering themselves with their wings. Four of their wings are just used to cover their faces. They're used to cover their feet. And we see this in other places as well where the sheer holiness of God, the glory of God, is just too much for these beings. Now, how much more do they see God than you and I see God? Like, they are literally in the throne in his presence. And they are consumed with this singular chorus, right? This eternal chorus that we hear in many places in Scripture. And we sing it today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That is, that is the chorus. Something about God's nature, who he is and the core of his being, makes these creatures cry out with this singular cry. Holy, holy, holy. Take note of that. We don't understand the holiness of God. Maybe we've talked about it. You heard a sermon on it. You read about it a little bit. I can assure you, you do not understand I'm assuring myself, I do not understand the holiness of God. I do not understand. These creatures, they're seeing something that is causing them to repeat this. And what do they say? They say, the whole earth is full of his glory. They're consumed with him, but then there's something where this glory, this holiness is meant to invade the earth. Like there's a shifting in their dialogue from he is holy, and it's going to flood the entire earth. What does the holiness of God mean? Okay. Well, for one thing, it means he's absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. There's nothing in God that's impure. He's morally pure. Every action, every thought, every deed, everything he does, 100% pure. We can't even imagine that. You've never met anybody even close to that. Even the most, you know, even the most amazing Christian that you know, I guarantee you they're not 100% pure. They're not even close. And, and so it, it, the magnitude of it is, is hard for us to grasp. He's also absolutely 100% separate. To be holy is to be separate, set apart, consecrated. Like the whole holiness requires a separation. And so there's no defilement, there's, there's no mixture in God. And He can't mix with people that are sinful or defiled or situations that are sinful and defiled. He's holy within Himself. And so there's a separateness that relates to holiness as well. And yet we see this God who is set apart from humanity. And yet his desire and his intention is to fill the whole earth with his glory. This set apart holy God to fill the earth, the wicked, corrupted, sinful earth with sinful people with his glory. Well, how in the world is he going to do that? Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a good verse. That's a good prayer. God, would you fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? And the seraphim know that that's his desire. The seraphim know that's where this is going. His holiness, somehow, way, expanding his glory, reaching the entire earth, the nations of the earth, the people of the earth, every tribe and tongue. We're gonna keep reading Isaiah chapter six, verse five. Here is Isaiah's response to a holy God. This is what happens when you get around this the holiness of God. He says this, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. He's seeing, maybe even for the first time, probably, the chasm that exists between his holiness, his humanity, and God's holiness, and God's perfection. And it calls him to cry, "Whoa, is me! And Isaiah, at this point, literally thinks he's going to die. He becomes silent. and He is silenced by the holiness of God. And he thinks he's going to die. I mean, Uzziah, he tried to burn incense before the Lord. He was struck down. How how can this sinful man, who's a part of a sinful nation, sinful people, how can he possibly stand in front of this holy God? He's going to get struck down. Woe is me. If you never had a woe is me moment with God, I pray you have one today. Because if you haven't, you haven't seen that holiness. And it's a scary thing, but it's a beautiful thing. You know, all these people in the Bible, you know, they, they encounter God. Daniel, Job, John, Apostle. They, they're terrified. They're not like, yeah, I'm in heaven. I'm seeing great stuff. They're like freaking out. Like, oh, my gosh. Because he's that holy and glorious and powerful. It's not that he's to be feared from this type, but it's, it's because he's God. Right? His holiness surpasses ours in every way. Have you ever had a moment like that with the Lord? A moment where you, you kind of you felt that, that holiness, that, that goodness, that, that, that weight that far outside, is outside of you? I've had a few of them. I've had some here in this, in this place. I had one recently I want to share with you when we were in Orlando, um, same trip. We were, we were at a in a session, and um, Jeremy Riddle was speaking, actually, worship leader, and he was sharing, he was sharing about just the need for repentance. And he was talking about just like the state of the church and like the trials that we're going through as the larger church. And and he's sharing about Nehemiah and the walls. And it's just like a normal session. Like, there's not a whole lot going on. Us, we're all just kind of listening to it. And and I could feel, like, the tremor of the Holy Spirit. And I was like, oh, no. Like, what's going to (laughs) happen? Like, I could just feel it coming on my heart. And the Lord, he he showed me, like, like what Jeremy was talking about. Like, just the picture of the church, like, the larger church once again. And it's like our walls were burnt to the ground. It's like the church was not ready. The church was not equipped. Like to do the things that God has called us to do, to be, to be the salt of the earth, to, to, to be like here and, and doing all the things God's purpose for us in this moment of, of time. So it's the present church here on the earth. And it, it ruptured something in me. I mean, I gave a cry because it was terrifying. And I became just desperate. And I went into intercession for, for the church and for myself. Said, God, what was me? We are not ready. How are we going to do this? you read all these things that God has for us. How are we going to do this? Like the the church is not there. We're not there. And I began to cry out. And even in that place of intercession, I was terrified and I was like crying and weeping. But in the midst of that, I felt this hope. I felt this peace. I felt this, you know what? I think this desperation is what is needed because God can use these broken people and these broken institutions we need these type of encounters because we can look then with eyes wide open and say, hey, we got a lot of issues. Like, but you know what? God has been using people with issues since the beginning. And if we become desperate and we cry out to God, he, he will still use us. He will be able to revive and use the church even when we see our shortcomings. And that goes for the large C and just the individual, right? You and I are the church. So it was intercession for me as much as it is for the larger church. And so I just think we need these type of Isaiah moments in our lives to keep us grounded, to keep us reminded that we we come to the table hurt and broken, but God is going to use us in that place when we turn to him, when we're desperate for him, not when we're prideful, not when we're throwing stones at other ministries and people. When we turn to him, he will use us for his purposes. Charles Spurgeon says this. And I love this quote. He says, this is our way to success. God will never do anything with us till he has, first of all, undone us. We must be taken to pieces and made to undergo a process much like destruction. And then we shall be newly fashioned according to a nobler mold, more fit to be used by our great Lord. To an often entitled and privileged church, we need to hear the message of God is holy, and we are not. We need to hear more about Jesus the king and less about the friend. We are friends with God, and it's a reality, and it's an important reality, but we also serve a king, and he is altogether holy, and he is altogether separate from us. And so that message is of high importance right now. I I was reading... um, I was reading, I've been reading some John Wesley stuff, and some of you have been sharing you about some of the things I've been reading, and um, just pondering this, like, what did it take, right, for the presence of God to dwell among people? Like, what did it really take? How do you really, how did Jesus really overstep this chasm of his holiness and our imperfection? What did it take? And, and Wesley has this interesting thing, I'm going to read it to you, and he says, well, you know, you can be holy and righteous before God if you, right, if you perform the works of the law, Right? So if you and I, if we want to do this without Christ, if you want to do this just on our own, we could perform the works of the law and be holy and righteous. And so here's what we could do if we want to be holy and righteous. Um, Here are the steps we could take. You must be perfect and flawless in every point of the law, because that's what the law demands, right? Perfection. You must live before God in perfect obedience. Are you able to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law, even the outward commands of God? Are you able to do nothing wrong? Nothing not every great and small thing. Are you able to stop the things that God forbids? Are you able to leave nothing undone that God requires? Are you able to speak no idle word? Are you able in all your conversations to minister grace to one another? And whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, are you doing everything for the glory of God? How about the inward commandments? This requires that every temper and motion of your soul should be holy unto the Lord. you able to do that? you able to love God with your whole heart all the time? To love mankind as your own soul? To pray without ceasing? In everything to give thanks? To have God always before you? Are you able to keep every affection and desire and thought in obedience to the law of God? If you're able to do that, you can be holy and righteous today. (laughs) Just do that. Now, the righteousness of the law requires perfect obedience. The holiness of God allows nothing less. Perfect obedience. No excuses, no defects. You must be holy. And if you fall short, you are condemned, you are cursed, and you are thrown out. That's the demand of the law. That's the demand of God's holiness, of God's righteousness. And surely when you put it in those terms, Colt, there's no way I can meet that. But sometimes we we don't recognize the terms. We don't recognize the measure of holiness that God really is. We're going to keep going. Isaiah 6, starting at verse 5. Going back to the situation of holiness. (laughs) Isaiah is feeling, Isaiah knows the law, right? He's feeling the heat. How, the holy heat, how is Isaiah going to possibly make amends for his sin? Here's what happens. This this amazing thing happens in the midst of Isaiah's crying out, woe is me, says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins atone for. How relieved must Isaiah have been? He thought he was going to die. He knew. He knew he couldn't measure up. He knew he'd sinned and fallen short. But how does God deal with his sin? He takes a fiery coal from the altar. Notice the holiness of God. Even the seraphim, they don't reach in and just grab the coal off the altar. They take a tong. And grab the coal. And then they hold it. So clearly, they're not afraid of fire. Like, But they have to take a tong to pull it off. They hold that fiery coal, and they place it on his lips. The very place where he had been defiled, right? He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, in the Old Testament, this fire, fire represented judgment. And so I don't even know what was going through his mind. He doesn't really say. Um, but if you think of this, he could be thinking, the fire of judgment is coming to my lips right now. Like God is going to make me pay for all the sin that I've spoken. But instead, the fire that we see here, it comes to purify. It comes to cleanse. It comes to make Isaiah holy. This is a wild thing. (laughs) This is not a light thing. This means that Isaiah, it says here that his sin was dealt with. Is guilt taken away. The judgment was removed and instead replaced with holiness and purification. Whoa. See, the coal is a symbol of Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah was seeing Christ in that moment. It was a symbol of Christ who made the one, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He himself got on the altar, right? This burning man, Jesus Christ, laid down his life and died in our place that he could be this cleansing, purifying force for all that would follow him, for all that would give their life to him. See, Jesus meets the standard of holiness that I was describing to you. He fulfilled every bit of that. He was perfect. He perfectly obeyed. He perfectly loved. His outward and inward life was perfection. How wild and crazy is that? How beautiful is that? And so what that means is when Jesus went to the cross, when he took the whipping, when he took the beating, when he took nails in his hands, nails in his feet, spears in his side, when he took all of that, that wasn't his punishment because he earned no punishment. That was your punishment. That was my punishment. That's what he bore to atone for our sins, to be a substitution for you and for me. So Isaiah is getting this reality in a day where Christ has not yet come in the natural. See, if you give yourself to Christ, he's removed your sin as far as the east from the west, right? He's, He's bridged the chasm that exists between our holiness and God's holiness. His body laid across that chasm. It's a marvelous thing. It's a wild thing. And so Jesus has made a way for us to dwell with God, for us to be in his presence, and for our sins to be removed. I think we take for granted the holiness of Christ, what he's won for us, not just in our salvation, but on a daily basis. You realize you woke up this morning, and you, some of you felt the presence of God, in your room, or you engaged with God, you did that because of the blood of the Lamb. You did that because Christ's body was broken for you. That didn't just happen. That happened because a price was paid for your life. So his presence is a precious thing that reminds us of what he's done. Isaiah 6, we're going to keep going. I'm going to read this last section, and then we're going to close. Isaiah 6, starting at verse 7. Now we're going to look here at what follows, right? He's been purified by this coal. And now he's going to be commissioned. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, and so he, the Lord, he said, Go and tell the people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people, of this people calloused. Make their ears dull in their eye and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see me with their eyes, hear me with their ears, understand me with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, I mean, Isaiah is like, first of all, Isaiah is very open, like, very, like, oh my gosh, like, God's cleansed me, he's healed me. This is the response, right, of somebody who's been saved. Like, send me, my gosh, like, send me. But then he gets the marching orders, and he's like, whoa, like, Lord, like, I'm going to preach, and nobody's going to repent, like, you're calling me to go to a people and, and give this word, and there's going to be no salvations. It's just going to be crickets. This is a bad calling. Like, this is the bad... You don't want to get this word if you're going into ministry. And then he said to them, so this is how he responds. He says, for how long, Lord? He's like, I said, I would do it, and now you're telling me what it means. And the Lord answered him, and he said to him, until the city's lie ruined... Without inhabitant, till the houses are left deserted, the fields are ruined and ravaged, till the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. Though a tenth remains in this land, it will be given again, it will again be laid waste. But as the terabith and the oak tree and the oak leaves, and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the, catch this, holy seed will be the stump in the land. calling him to this very challenging ministry. He's calling them to give a message where there will be no repentance and no change of heart. And in fact, what he says will make people ripe for judgment, not for salvation. It's intense. Isaiah like, how long? He says, well, until the cities lie ruined, until all these things happen. Now here's where it gets interesting. In the whole book of Isaiah, you have this, this constantly this is what's happening. And we've read, a lot of us just read through the book of Isaiah and the Bible reading plan. There's constantly this judgment that's being released. It's intense judgment, right? But it's always attached to this promise, to this hope. I love that about God. There's no judgment that doesn't have these outcomes that are about hope and promise and love and the fulfillment of God's plan. And so, even in the midst of this hard word, there's this hope that God puts in here. He says, There is a holy seed. There will be a stump in the land. E- even though there's going to be, this tree is going to fall, the tree of Israel is going to be cut down. Even as Bill was saying earlier, there's a seed that was put in Abraham that's been passed down through Israel, all through the Jewish people, through David, that seed is going to bear fruit in due time. And that seed it's Christ himself. Through Israel, the Jewish man is going to be the hope That Isaiah is waiting for. And even when Isaiah preaches and nothing good happens, he can take hope because he knows there is a man coming, there's a Messiah coming, and he is going to clean this mess up. And everything that God gave Isaiah is in preparation for him, the Savior of the world. And so, how much more in our ministries, in our life, God gives you assignments, right? And they're frustrating assignments, they're hard assignments. Maybe they're just simple. They don't seem big enough. They don't, they don't have enough fruit in this world. That's the worst type of assignment for me. An assignment that's fruits are like, oh, your kid's kids will experience this. Great. Like, that's awesome. Like, that's a word that you really don't like to get. But that, how many know, that's the reality of a lot of these words. Like, a real, like, there's a prophetic storyline that often looks like, hey, two generations from now, they'll get it. Great. Said every artist who is successful. So, like, there is like, there is this, uh, th- th- this place in God where it's like we just trust him and we know his plans. And we just sow and we just minister and we just lay our life down. Wh- whatever he says to do, even if we're not seeing the things that, that we want to see. And, and when we walk with God, even prophetically in a company like this, you understand where God is going, what he's doing. And it helps you to be present and it helps you to show up every day and just serve the Lord with what he's given you to do. And say, you know what, I can't see it, I don't understand it, but I know these plans are good. I know God's got redemptive plans for the earth, so I'm going to be obedient with whatever he puts in front of me. No matter how small it is, no matter if I don't see the fruit in this life, I'm going to be obedient. And so Isaiah was, because he saw the holy seed is coming. Jesus is coming. Now we see in, in the book of John, um, chapter 12, you, you see... He talks about Isaiah and he's referencing this very moment. He's referencing these very words that I'm reading to you in Isaiah 6. And he says, he says, um, it says that even after Jesus, this is verse 37, uh, John 12, verse 37, even after Jesus had performed many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him, the Jewish people. They wouldn't believe him. And it says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. So we think that's for Isaiah's time, and it was. It's also for time of Christ. That word is being fulfilled in Christ's demonstration of signs and wonders, and still their hearts are hardened. Their hearts don't turn. And it says, if you keep reading through in verse 41, Isaiah said this. Why? Because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah in the Old Testament saw Jesus' glory, and that's what he was proclaiming. There's a holy seed coming that's going to it's going to make everything right. Do your job. Do the thing God's given you to do. Trust him. Trust he's in control. Trust he's on the throne. And I will bring Jesus to make everything right. And I will redeem every wickedness that you see. Romans 11, verse 25. I'm going to skip to this before we close. This is a reminder of this, this hardening of hearts that we see with the Jewish people even now. Here's where it's leading to. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." How many of you know God will do what he said he's going to do? Yeah. Well, I, got, I have these Jewish friends, and I've been, I've been telling them about Jesus, and they won't listen, and there's a veil of, don't, don't stop. Because there's a time where that's going to end. God's given many of you a heart for the nations in this city. God's given many of you this evangelistic edge to reach people in this city. How important is that? Because it says the Jews won't come until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. That, that's a valuable thing. That, and, that, and we should be expectant in these times where Israel is being hemmed in, where there's attacks, where there's hatred. Again, We should be expectant. That tells me there's a harvest of souls coming in the earth. There's a massive harvest because that's got to happen before Israel is going to come in. And so it should give you expectancy in, even in the midst of the turmoil and the hatred and the pain and, and the terrible things that are happening in the earth. We know this is God's plan. We know this is going to happen. This will happen. And it helps us to not be offended when things come. It helps us to not agree with anti-Semitic narratives, to not agree with with hatred towards the Jewish people. It helps us to pray for the Arab world, for, for, for Muslims, and for all these different people groups and nations, knowing their salvation is actually going to usher in the Jewish salvations that we're expecting to see. It helps us not to take all these political sides, but to pray God's heart and to not be offended by the things that we see. I really want to stress and encourage you today. We cannot be offended. We cannot be offended. There are things that are coming into the earth. We have to know he's good and he has a redemptive plan. We can't be offended. I'm telling you, it will corrupt and erode your faith. And I I pray for myself and each and every one of us that we wouldn't take the bait of offense in this season. Mike Bickle says it's more destructive than, than any persecution, anything else. It's a spirit of offense. And if you agree with it, you will find yourself in a very, very rough place. Can we have the worship team come up? I just think it's, it's so important that in, a, in this season, we don't check out. Because the tension, it can wear you down. Yeah. I felt that this week, reading headlines, praying through things. We're here praying over wars and, and, and all these. And it's tough to know how to pray for various things. You want to pray God's heart for everybody. But then the whole, there's all these geopolitical things happening. Don't let it wear you down. Lean into him. Ask God for that Isaiah type of moment. Those throne room moments where you see him in his glory. You see him on his throne. You see his holiness. You want to talk about something that's going to keep you from offense? I've seen the holiness of God. When you're crying out, woe is me, you are not thinking about throwing stones at other people. You are thinking your pride is getting shellacked. Because my gosh, like you recognize you bring nothing to the table. God, we need to be humbled in this season so that we may be your, your church, and we may be your bride, and we may be, exude the peace and the love of Christ in times of crisis. Could everybody stand for me, please? I just want to pray with us uh, before we go back into worship. Holy Spirit, we, we ask for you. We ask for your help right now, God. Lord, I pray for a holy desperation like Isaiah had. God, I pray you would guard our mind and our heart right now in this season. Lord, I pray that our eyes and our thoughts would be guarded from the deceptive ways of the world, God. That we would be caught up in your ways. God, I pray right now, Lord, any stones that we're throwing, Lord, that you would, you would help us to put them down. He said, so he without saying cast the first stone. God, we want to put them down that we would see you. And that we would step into our role in this season. How many of you know we have a massive role to play? God has placed this church, this this people, in this city with the greatest number of Jewish people in the entire planet. They're in our city. And we've been called as intercessors to pray his heart, to pray for the coming of Christ, to pray for the fullness of his glory, to pray that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, I pray today, would you give us the grace, would you give us the grace to fulfill this mandate, to fulfill this call, to not back down in this season. Lord, would you give us your heart, your heart for Israel, your heart for the Arab people, your heart for Muslims, your heart for terrorists, your heart for those that are enemies with Israel, that are enemies with you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.